Welcome back to The Bulwark Goes to Hollywood. My name is Sonny Bunch. I am culture editor at The Bulwark, uh, and I'm very pleased to be rejoined today by the Nelms Brothers, uh, who have a new movie out, Red Right Hand. Uh, it is on VOD now. Uh, we're gonna we're gonna talk about that here in a second. But uh, you 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 folks may remember them as uh, the writers and directors of Fat Man, uh, the uh, new Christmas classic, nouveau Christmas classic. Everyone, every Christmas, people, people, you know, send me uh, tweets. They're like, "I love this movie. I'm glad you uh, you turned me on to it." Uh, so thanks for being back on the show, guys. Oh, thank Dude, you, man. Thank uh, you for having honored us. to be here, and we really appreciate your support on Fat Man, man. That was awesome. Uh, we uh, we got a new one here to talk about today. Red Right Hand, uh, and what's what what jumped out at me just looking at the production notes on this one uh, was that. This is, I think, the first feature film that you guys did not write. Is that is that correct? Sort of. We we did one before Waffle Street. We also collaborated with Autumn McAlpin to write that one. Uh, but this is the first one that we I did would not say write. that we haven't written at all. Yes. Yeah. So and what was, what? Go ahead. What was it about the script that jumped out to you that you're like, we we got to make this. This is this is what we're doing next. It is probably it's the only script we've read <laughs> so far uh, that we were so excited about the characters and the backdrop. And then, of course, you you the way that it was structured was so wonderful. Right. You dive in with this family. You get hooked into them. You're hooked into the main character. And then he does this little switcheroo where you see the villains come and then he joins in with them. And you're wondering, well, where the hell is this going? Now I'm on now I'm doing jobs with this guy and these people. And then you start to see that it's the queen pin trying to reel him back in. And then, of course, the sort of second half of the film, you know, you get spoiler. to you ramp up. You know, <laughs> I don't want to go too deep into it, right? I don't want to spoil it too bad. But you start really ramping up the sort of action and tension and thriller elements of the film. Yeah, but it's, it's honestly, it's Jonathan's dialogue, his characters. They le absolutely leapt off the page. It was an absolute page turner. Because we wouldn't have we wouldn't have cared about those thriller tension action moments later if we weren't so weren't so sucked in by those characters earlier. Yeah, I, I, I'm glad you mentioned that. I want to read uh, a passage from Ed Zwick's new autobiography, uh, which is out now. And he, there's a great line in here um, where he is talking to Sidney Pollack, the, the director, actor, Sidney Pollack, uh, about something in a script. And Sidney Pollack's like, the script's not working. It's not working. And Ed Zwick's like, no, no, it works. It's good. The plot is good. And then he he turns to Zwick and he says, listen, kid, plot is the rotting meat the burglar throws to the dog so he can climb over the fence and get the jewels, which are the characters, which I think is just a great this great visceral image. Uh, so what about it was what what were the jewels of these characters when you were when you were looking at them? What 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 jumped out at you as like these are uh, people that uh, everyone needs to know. For, for cash, I think. It's his past. He's got such a rough past and you get the idea that he's got a lot of PTSD from that past and having him being pulled back into where he has to confront that and go deal with it and go do it again. Um, but this time for his family uh, was re really drew me in, like really sucked me in. Uh, the, fa the, the father, Finney uh, of, of Savannah, um, I thought that he was really sympathetic um, you've seen those characters before, but I don't think you've seen those characters in that environment with those kind of stakes. Uh, at least I hadn't. Um, and then the daughter, you know, the sort of the she's the naivete. She's also the ingenue. And she comes into her own by the end of it, having to, in our experience, push herself to a place that I wasn't expecting in yeah. that script. And then obviously Big Cat. Uh... We were, we were like, wow, if we got the right 
powerful actor for this. This could be a performance of a lifetime. Well, uh, so, and, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah, well, and, and so that, look, it's a twofold situation there because it's kind of a synergistic thing happened because we had sat down with Orlando after Small Town Crime and really hit it off with them. And we were kind of looking for something to do with him. And so when Jonathan's script landed on the desk, we're like, oh, wow, we could get Orlando. And we've never seen Orlando do anything like this. And, and that really excited us. And we were like, I hope to God he likes this because if he does, it would be incredible just to see him doing some of these scenes. Like we were just really excited about having him do that character. And then with Andy, uh, she was on our list of like, okay, it would be amazing if... if Cause she was an outside the box pick, but I'm the one, I honestly was like, man, the chances of her doing that are so remote. This doesn't that, seem like what she wants like to do. Like we're probably just wasting our time with a submission to her. But her agent passed it to her, unbeknownst to us, because uh, it was going around to start talking about casting. Um, and she passed it to her and said, hey, I think you might dig this. And then Andy came to us and said, guys, I know you've never seen me do a role like this, but I have this in me, just ask my kids. And she was like, I, I, wa I want to dive deep into this. So we had the first Zoom with her. And man, she brought a little bit of that big cat with her. She was wearing dark leather pants. She had the edge with her. It was a very pleasant conversation, but you could see that that she was gonna tear this role apart. Yeah, and I think for us, like, you know, a script on the page, it's the alchemy of the characters in the translation that really get us excited. And so uh, obviously you've got the two leads there, but then it's like, you know, us casting like Scott Hayes and Garrett Dillahunt and Brian Garrity and Jeremy Rashford. Uh, James Lafferty. And then Finding Chapel Oaks. Finding Chapel. That was another one that was, uh, you know, we didn't have anybody in mind for that role. So it was like, okay, let's open it up. And we just started taking calls and meetings with actors. Um, and, you know, she was, she, there were there were a handful of very prominent actors of that age group that we'd seen do wonderful things that wanted the role. And Chapel just, she beat him out, man. She was just that good. Well, that's that has to be a, a tough role to to cast. But also, you, I mean, you know, as the directors, you, you have to be a little bit worried that she's up there against, you know, a guy who has been in the Lord of the Rings movies and the Pirates of the Caribbean series. Andy McDowell, you know, one of the one of the uh, great actresses of, of her time. And then she, this is basic. This is her first movie. Yeah. 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 It was her first movie. Yeah. I think something else came out where she had a, a smaller part in it before us. But this was the first one she shot. And, I, and you're absolutely right. I mean. Look, man, it's a leap of faith, and you do you do all you can through this audition process, and and at the ultimate, you're like, okay, well, hopefully, when we get she and Orlando and Andy and Scott, everybody in the same room, that this translates, and, and she can hold her own. I will say there was one moment when we were doing oh, a Zoom call with her, yeah, that I think it was our second Zoom call it was like the callback Zoom call, <laughs> in which we said we said. Uh, Okay, we, we, want, a little more we want you to push your emotions a little bit more in this moment. And it was one of the more intense moments in the script, in the in the movie. And she was like, okay, okay, okay. And her dad said something to her and she goes, no, dad, no, no, it's got to be real. And she like closed her eyes and we're like, oh shit. <laughs> she closes her eyes, like goes to a different place, envisions where she's at, opens her eyes, comes back on and was like, killed it. We were yeah. just like, okay. Like and, there's something here. And if she had the confidence to ask, you know, to ask for that time in front of us to take the moment to find the character and then can deliver the character. Yeah. All in that circumstance. But like she's going to be fine when she gets in, in the room with everybody else. And 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 you hope. Right. Because there's there's two things that could happen when an actor gets in there with with another actor that's a lot more experienced. 
they can either rise even further or they can start to fall apart. And she rose. She rose the occasion every time. That uh, I mean, that's that's great. So let's let's talk about the the leads here, because, you you know, you've got again, you've got Orlando Bloom and he's been in a couple of movies in very interesting roles for him. Again, kind of out of his uh, comfort zone recently. He was in um, uh, The Outpost, the Rod Lurie film. I don't know if you guys yep. saw yeah, that, but he's he, he's he's great in that. Uh, and then uh, he has kind of a supporting role in Gran Turismo, which was unexpected. Like, again, it's just different than what he yeah. what he is usually doing and here you've got him playing basically it's it's like a character out of a walter hill movie yeah. from the from the 70s right like this kind of southern backwoods guy tough i again i just in my notes i just have like southern orlando bloom exclamation point uh it was so when you were when you were sitting down to work with him what were you what were you emphasizing what were you trying to get him to do with the character I think a big part. Of, I think a big part of the transformation for him was the dialect, of course. You know, and he worked for like three months getting that dialect down, and we thought he had just nailed it. Um, I mean, he was recording locals. Uh, he was trying varying degrees of the of the accent uh, throughout this these sort of like various takes he would send us. Um, yeah, he had a wonderful dialect coach. And then, you know, when we got the physicality of the character, he obviously had a bunch of ideas on what the hair, the facial hair. The, the physical stature of this guy because he needed to be capable in his job and he's obviously like in manual labor. Um, and then the, it, the real magic started happening when he was collaborating with the makeup team and the costume because that's when he found those boots that sort of gave Cash this sort of like clunky like stride. Um, and then the, the tattoo placement where he and Scott Hayes really dug in together and they picked the tattoos that would match and like really built their characters out through the ink um, on their bodies. You said you asked you asked what what was it about him that we liked, right? What was it about him that drew us that drew us to him for that character? When we sat down with him, we had like a couple hours and we sat down and there was when you're sitting down with him and you're thinking about the characters that you've seen him play, there were faucets of him that we could see that were awesome and interesting that we'd never seen on screen before. And when we got that script, we instantly just said, holy shit, like I think we could sort of reinvent him in this in a way, you know what I mean? And I, he saw it as well. He was just like, oh yeah, I've never done anything like this. This is a fucking badass movie is what he told us right off the bat. He's like, this This is going to be a lot of fun. So he was totally down for this transformation, which he, he sunk his teeth into. Um, and we were hoping for that, you know? And uh, the other, the other, the other character note I had in my in my notebook as I'm as I'm watching the movie is evil Andy McDowell, which again, like unusual, not not uh, precisely what uh, you know folks who have loved her in Groundhog Day and everything else would expect. All right, so you you've got her on the Zoom. She's wearing the leather pants. It still has to be. It has to be again. This is a leap of faith uh, yeah. casting her in in this movie. I mean, all all I could all we could say is like you you get a vibe, you sit down with a person, you look in their eyes, you see what they're throwing at you. They're swearing they can do it. If there's an appetite there and it's a hundred percent genuine and you can feel that, and you can kind of see it in the role, it work. It just it just works. You yeah. just know it. You're just like, it, and you just got to trust your gut. And it, and that's really what Ian and I do. We go, if it's if we both turn to each other after the meeting and go, that's our person. You, you, you can't question it twice. You can't overanalyze it because then you'll start talking yourself out of it. And she, she wasn't Big Cat on the call, but we got a version 
of what what Big Cat could have been. It was obviously a lot more subdued and it was just a person, but she was giving us flares. She was giving us moments. It was all by design. And we were, sure. of course, and we were just <laughs> like, oh, okay, we we see this. I can see this now. She was giving us these little edgy moments when she was talking to us. Totally pleasant, had a blast. Yeah, We were all laughing the whole time and having a great time and talking about the characters and stuff. But she would give us these little flares and you're just like, oh shit. Yeah, and I, and I remember we had similar situation with like Walton. Yes, that's like we were sitting at a coffee shop and like Walton like stands up and becomes the skinny man. And we're like, oh man, like this is our dude. Like it's it, when that moment happens, right? You'll see a bunch of actors, but when that moment happens, you have to, to listen to it. It's like, it's there, this, this is the perfect storm, go. It, well, it's it's funny you just mentioned. All right, so you see Walton Goggins in a in a coffee shop. The, these inter, these um, uh, auditions were over Zoom. Have things changed forever in terms of casting and all that uh, when you're when you're sitting down to make a movie like this? Because I, I feel like the Zoom interview audition process is just fundamentally so much different from how things used to be. And being able to see that physicality, like how does that how does that work now differently than it did in the in the before time and the long, long ago? But I do think uh, you're absolutely right. A Zoom meeting is harder to translate and get the essence in an in-person conversation. But, you know, look, we've been doing them a while now and uh, we're all getting better at it. And, uh, you know, I'd love would it love to see it go back the other way. Absolutely. And I think, you know, hopefully it feels like it's kind of going that way. Um, but there is something just, you know, it's really convenient to do it over Zoom, you know? Yeah. yeah. When you're in Kentucky, you know, you know, you can't fly out to L.A. to meet an actor. You know, that's, that's what I was going to say, too. Yeah. Is there's, a, there's a convenience to it. There's a, uh, a, a speed to it. It's like, you know, we're in Kentucky prepping or, you know, she's in North Carolina, you know, or we're in L.A. It's just it's hard to it's it, it, the great thing about it is now you can span that gap with, you know, expediency and and some kind of some kind of quality. Right. Some kind of being able to see them do their thing and meet them in person as a person via video uh, rather than at least a phone call, you know. Yeah, and it expands the talent pool for sure. I mean, that's, you know. Yeah, that wouldn't even have been possible if it, if it had to be in person. Right? Yeah, I don't know how we would have, because Ka- Chapel was a few states away, you know? So I don't, it's not like she was going to be able to drive up and, and audition for us either. So if we wouldn't, I don't know if we would have found her either. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, you mentioned, um, or, or we talked a little bit about some of the, uh, you know, the... Um, uh, predecessors here, some of the influences. So when when you were sitting down and you're explaining to somebody, this is this is what this movie is like. This is what uh, the vibe we're going for. How would you uh, how would you do that? What are what are some of your influences here? What are some of the the films you would recommend people? If people like X, they'll like this. You want to talk about some of those those things we watched that we were that we were that we were because these it's it's interesting because it's always one of the things we're looking for in a film too, right? Is that it's not exactly quantifiable. You know what I mean? Because so, so you're like, oh, it's this part's kind of like that. That part's kind of like exactly. that. And we'll go through and we'll watch like a place beyond the pines for this one. We watch Wind River, um, a few others. You know, like a ton of others. We have like fifteen or twenty films. We were we watching watch. Scorsese's Bring Out the Dead. I mean, for different <laughs> reasons, obviously. But no one's driving around in an ambulance. But we were we were watching a lot of different films for a lot of different looks. We watched we watched probably about a dozen films for handheld aesthetic. Uh, because we wanted to use handheld on the family, and we family and we wanted stuff. to get it right. Yeah, yeah. And there's you know there's there's great handheld, and it was almost at that point we'd never we haven't we hadn't really used handheld in that way before. It's like a 
actual visual theme. So when we were heading into it, we were like, let's watch, let's watch as many handheld films as we can. And let's watch the ones, because we, we didn't really like handheld. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. Sitting there saying, hey, we want to use handheld on this and try to find and do it well. We'd actually finally seen a couple of films. That was the problem is like we started to see movies where we liked it. And we're like, oh, wow, we should really like I think this aesthetic for this particular movie would be really great. Because handheld is a, does a good job of draw. A good handheld has a good job of drawing you in. Band had, bad handheld has a has a good does a good job of making you sick. Take you out. And making you feel like it doesn't feel cinematic. You know, but good good handheld is cinematic and it's done really well. And you're like, oh my god, okay. I'm not only am I not only am I, does it feel like a movie, but I'm being sucked in as if I'm there. You know, yeah, it can be a, add a little bit more voyeuristic uh, intimacy to it. Well, that's a, a, so. What was it about? What was it about those scenes with the family that made you want to want to experiment with handheld as a as a visual idea? I mean, we just wanted it to be more intimate, more voyeuristic. More we wanted personal. you to feel like you were sitting in the room with them. Um, we did. Uh, we didn't want you to be distracted by fancy camera moves. You know, these are sort of the, some of the things that really led to this these decisions. And when, yeah. when we did get to the action sequences or some of the some of the bigger sequences where we did want to do a few camera moves, um, I think it was fine because we were trying to sort of uh, use a cinematic language to show you know not just like scope and tension and reveal and you know we're trying to use those more cinematic conventions for for tension and and surprise and like I said, reveals, you know, like we we were just really trying to be conscious of how we were moving our camera and why. And then we really we really wanted to use a a pretty big juxtaposition by going with some big sweeping uh, drone stuff as well. So you would have this like high over the head, you could see the canopies of the trees and like really open it up and then bam, dig down into that more intimate photography on the ground it was really fun to use during the action sequences because we're big fans of having the geography of the action you know at your at your right on the tip of your mind you're like oh i know he's over here because for us in those action sequences it adds a lot of tension to know where everybody's at where all your players are at and how they're moving and where that person is in juxtaposition to that person it just makes it a lot more fun to track the sequence and there's a lot of tension built of like oh my god he's right over there and your mind's just going a, a mile a minute you know keeping up with it because you can which is fun. The the drone stuff is interesting because I really do feel like we are, you know, we we have a, a new tool here. The first kind of new real new tool to do things visually uh in in a long time. I mean it reminds me of I don't know, the introduction of uh steady cam or whatever. There there's yeah. like there's like a new thing that we can use to uh tell a story visually. So when you were there with the, when you're there with the drones, you're trying to figure out, you know, okay, this is what we're gonna do with this. How does that work? I, I'm fascinated by this and I don't have the language for it because no like nobody's really written about, you know, the 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 work that guys like Michael Bay um or um uh, the uh, the Russo brothers, whatever, are doing with drones as a way of both like creating intimacy, like using using it fluidly to get intimacy, but also using it to get the scope and the scale of everything. So when you're sitting down, I'm sorry, this is a very long question. When you're sitting down with the drones and trying to figure out how to use them, how to make it work within the language of the film, what are you considering? What are you trying to do with it? So for us, it is, it gives that uh, elevated perspective, right, where you can get a a huge sweeping vision of where you're at and the topography of it. And then it can also tie together many elements into once, the obviously the art strip it. I just think for us, it's that harsh juxtaposition, right? And it also creates this great energy, like in the intro of the film with some of the motorcycle stuff, right? You get these sweeping things, you kind of bird's eye view through the top of the trees. It's just, I don't, 
I, for us, look, what Michael Bay and, and some of the Russos and some of these folks that really take drones and like throw them through a house and do all that mm-hmm. stuff, like amazing, right? Amazing technical accomplishments. But for us in this movie, we didn't want the, the, that sort of flashy photography to distract from the story. Yeah, I thought I thought a lot of the drone looks that we did was fun to use because it it in in a in a bigger film with a lot of setup, you can get those shots with cranes and jibs helicopters and track. Whereas helicopters, right, and track work. But when we're when we're having to move as fast as we can with as low a budget as we had, and you know, we had we had a significant amount of money. If if you're an independent filmmaker, we had a good chunk for for this. It's you know, you have to if you're going to make an action film of this size. But um, it allowed us to do a lot quicker setups, obviously, because there's not track, there's not a jib, there's not a and a lot less crew to run those drones and get those angles and those perspectives that we usually wouldn't have been able to get. Yeah, and it just comes through our storyboard process when we're like, oh wow, what do we want to see here, right? So we. Like, oh, wow, let's go elevated high. We want to see the, you know, cash zipping towards the farm. We've got the canopy of trees, the motorcycle zipping through them. And then we want to see where he's going in the horizon. And a lot of times, you know, this is our first time using as much drone work as we have. And thankfully, we we got to use it because, honestly, if we were the film we are, the size we are, we wouldn't have had such dynamic shots because of the time and money it takes to get those setups. It also opened it up, right? I mean, if you shot the whole movie from the ground, you'd feel smothered. You'd yeah. feel like you couldn't get the scope of the land. How am I going to see these four or five players all in the same shot? And we do have these nice moments where you can kind of see the landscape for a second before we pop into the story we're running with. Um, but yeah, it, it was it was it was great to have for this movie in particular because of how much land we were. All this was playing out on at the end of the movie. There is there is challenges though in that um, you've got to pick your days right and and that was a challenge for us and we did end up overcoming it by finding a crew member that was a. a a licensed drone operator so we could have the drone eventually essentially any day we wanted it at any time that's that's challenging right you're sitting there looking at your script and it's like okay well what two days do you want the drone it's like well that's not going to work right two days on the whole you know 31 day 31 and a half day shoot no, and most no. people end up with like one or two wide sweeping shots in odd moments or one or two moments that work and then another odd yeah. moment because that scene just happened to fall on that day yeah they're like jamming in these drone shots because well these are the two days we have it so we're shooting it seeing you better know, get that fucking one twenty seven. we gotta put it in there right and so like we're like well, that's not gonna work like we gotta yeah. figure out a way to have this thing at our disposal every day that was one of the things that came up right in the pre-production immediately is Ash as he's boring it out we're like hey we've got all these shots and they're like okay well we only have it in the budget for this many days of drone shots which days do you want it's like well shit yeah like i was saying that's not going to work because we need it intermittently out throughout all these days so, so we came up with an, a work a workaround yeah we bought we, we found a person on the crew that could be manning it at all times and we bought it and we said it's there every time we need it so it's like put the drone up shoot that shot boom now we're back to coverage well, that's wild. So, I, I, just one more dumb question because I again I don't I don't know I don't know how this works. So when you're when you're you're, you're sitting down you're you're setting up shots uh, that are that are taking place on the ground. It, are you doing the drone shots simultaneously, or, or are all the drone shots you know kind of planned out specifically? Like this is we got to do. We're we just have the drone running right now. Yep. Both. So it's, it's a, <laughs> the drone is a pain in the neck, right? Because if you look at a film set, that is not. Uh, conducive to a, a wide sweeping drone shot when you've got the entire crew running around in your shot. So we would have to definitely be like, okay, hey, before we set up this shot, we're gonna get these drone shots and then everyone can come in, we can shoot this, then we gotta fly everything out, we'll shoot that next drone shot. You know, 
it, it, it's a pain in the neck to use, but um, it, again, for us, it's absolutely worth it. There were some moments that we were able to keep a, a couple of cameras going on the ground. Some of those moments where we had where we did have the drone doing a shot that we could kind of hide things in certain spots. But the bigger ones, yeah, you got to clear it all out. Yeah, the uh, the drone shots also give you again. It's that kind of a sense of sweep and scope, but also a very specific place. I mean, this is a movie that feels like it takes place in the hollers of Kentucky, right? This is like a this is a uh, a a a movie that feels like it takes place in a place, which is you know, which is nice when you when you're planning that out. How do you um, how do you create that sense of community identity within the community? Uh, as you're as you're thinking about the 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 visual language of it, for us it was a painstaking amount of location scouting, and we're pretty relentless when we're doing our location scouting. We spend weeks and weeks and weeks, uh, usually before even the rest of the team comes down. We get out there early and we try to spend at least three weeks, and we're doing it all the way throughout pre-production. But we try to spend three weeks really just getting to know the landscape. How far can we reach? How far can we drive? And then every nook and cranny of everywhere. Yeah. We probably visited every hauler within an hour of Kentucky four or five times within that three weeks. Just, well, let's go back over there and see if that was there. You know what I mean? Because you, you don't always have everything in your mind. Um, yeah, we would we drove the hell out of that place. And I will say like a, a lot, look, you have your location scouts and they're out finding stuff and sending stuff to you, but Ian and I like to do it personally, right? Like we don't, we, we want to get out there. We want to meet the people personally. We want to drive through the haulers. We want to experience that ourselves because you, you're, you're gleaning all these different things, right? You're seeing like you're going to drive over this this bluff and then you see this amazing vista and you're like, okay, bookmark. They were dropping pins. We're like, get the drone out here. We got to shoot this shot. Um, you know, it's things like that. Like a lot of that opening drone work that opens the movie, we discovered on those location scouts we were out there driving around and we'd see these beautiful vistas i'm like oh amazing like we have to come back with the drone and get this so it that's such a critical part of our understanding of the environment and the locations and the people that are of that area well it's great to send the scouts out and they did a great job on this movie but you you it, there's no replacement for the actual person who's trying to direct the film or people who are trying to direct the film saying this is what i need this is what i'm looking for because i mean you have two or three people out driving around looking for stuff but they're driving past things that we will, we would probably want to use or look at like or even like a, a truck parked in someone's yard right that too right we're like oh man stop and we're gonna go put a, a leafer on that truck window and see if they'll let us use it for the movie like yeah. we're just looking for anything we can find in the area that really fuels our fire so we hate to just kind of leave it up to other people you know especially on location scouting because it's so important you find so much stuff you know when you're out there yeah, the uh, the 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 house that Big Cat lives in is this kind of big mansiony space. Where was that a private residence? How'd you guys uh, get that? Because I I love I love stories. A lot of the times you get these stories where we had to borrow somebody's house and we you know, we kind of messed it up and they, you know. But how was how what was that? What was getting that space like? Not easy. <laughs> uh, we just start off with that. It was that was a, a, really a needle in a stack of needles um, to find because it ne had very specific requirements for the way everything blocked out, especially at the end, right? Like Cash had to sneak around through the forest and like find all that. We didn't cheat anything. Like that's all there. Like that how he like goes up the ravine. All that's like right around that area. So, but finding that place took a ton of work. It took. We looked at a ton of houses. And another interesting anecdote about that is it, it's a private residence. Um, we it was kind of overlooked because the front of the house is is not very cinem cinematic we shot the back of the house for the front 
So you go into the backyard and that big splendid like mansion-esque you know, two-story facade is there, but in the front, it looks like a very humble home. And the coolest thing about it was that, you know, that we were talking to the owner and she's like, well, it's interesting you want to use the back for the front because when this was built in the early 1900s, that actually was the front of the house. And like, when, when cars came into you know, yeah. prevalence, we moved it, there was moved to the front. It was switched. It was switched to the other side. And that was the other look we really wanted on the house, right? It had to be modern enough. And that house is super modern in ways. But it has to have throwback too. It has to have a retro history. feel. It has to have history. It has to have the columns and the like, it, like the fireplace, you know, and the big room and the wood and the leather. Like it has to have this feel to it, and like all the ornate work that's that's running along the the ceiling. Like you just and all the bookcases they put in. There was there was such uh, care and craftsmanship putting in put into that house, and it shows on screen, and it feels like it was built in the 1900s, and then had some layers of 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 new put on it. And that was exactly what we wanted. We wanted someone who'd been in that area for a long time and her family was in that area. You know, you want to feel the history. And that's how they've come to power, right? Is they've been there so long. They haven't gone anywhere and they're not going anywhere. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's a, that, that is a very, it's a great location because it does give that vibe off. It is like, this is, I, you know, that gives off the vibe of like, this is old South, not old, yeah. old South, but like yeah. been here, been here. A while, so I, I always like to close these interviews by asking if there's anything I should have asked. If you think there's anything uh, folks should know about the movie or what you guys are doing next, I whatever anything anything you think folks should know. Look, I mean, I think you did a fantastic job. Um, we did. We went to places we hadn't gone. Yeah, this is good. So that was really fun. <laughs> that was super fun. Um, but anything we, that you missed, um, I don't know, man. We're just ex we're we're just excited that people seem to be reacting really positively to the movie because when we read it. There was just some, you've seen a ton of thrillers like this. You watch the trailer, you're like, oh yeah, I kind of know what that movie is. But to be honest, when we started reading it, we're like, oh, I kind of know what this movie is. And then it took so many kind of left but earned turns that it was such a pleasure to read and the characters were so well-defined and put together that we had such a blast reading it. We were like, this has to be made. It's, it's, it's. It's its own thing. Like we, when you were saying, what is it like? What is what? What can I say that it's kind of like? I like that question uh, because I, I almost feel like you're having a hard time defining it perfectly, and and that excites me because I think we wouldn't have made it if if it was easily definable. We wouldn't have made it if you would have been like, yeah, well, it's exactly like, like this. It's exactly like next to Kin with Patrick Swayze. It's just Orlando's Patrick Swayze, and you're like, oh, okay, I get it. Like I don't even. I'm not even excited to see that movie, let alone make it. But this one, this one is two or three different movies woven together wonderfully, um, and it has a, a, a fun tone to it. There's some humor in the in some of those moments. Like I really like the moment when he's broing out. He's not broing out exactly, but there's a kind of a bro out moment with him and the and uh, uh, what's Kenny's character's name? The Buck, where that where he's kind of like, hey, you mind if I get that cigarette? You know, like those kind of little yeah. moments <laughs> between. You know, there's there's such tension between them, but it's also kind of like, hey, we're on a stakeout. Hey, you know, let, let's fucking hang out a little bit. And no, we're not fucking hanging out at all. Uh, there was just so many fun little moments like that all the way throughout that I, I felt like made it its own animal. All right. Uh, Ian and Esham Nelms, thanks again for being on the show. I really appreciate it. Uh, this is this is a pleasure. It's always great to have you have you guys on. Thanks so, so much, Sonny. It's an absolute pleasure for us, man. Thank you. Means Mountain. All right. Uh, once again, my name is Sonny Bunch. I am culture editor at The Bulwark, and I will be back next week with another episode of The Bulwark Goes to Hollywood. We'll see you guys then. Mm -hmm.